Did I tell you that on 4th of July, like, after I'd been home for like two hours, I found a stink bug inside my shirt, crawling oh. around on my back. <laughs> Wanted a piece of that. Something like that. Of course, you know, it's one of those things where like, you're like, what's going on? Is Did that move? Did mm-hmm. that itch just move? You know? <laughs> And you reach back there, and then something wiggles underneath Someone's, your hand. Oh, that's the worst. It's the worst feeling, feeling. and it's hard. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. Sheetiness <laughs> reminded me of Roshar. Stinkbug was probably an adorable pet on Roshar. Yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back, Basement Edition, yo. <laughs> My name's Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 102, covering Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson from the prologue through chapter four. That's right. And our next book club will be covering chapters five through 12. Bit of a longer section, but we will probably have a two-week interval between podcasts. So give you a little bit more to chew on. There you go. Now, our spoiler policy is that Liz has read everything in the Cosmere, everything Brandon Sanderson has written, including the restraining orders, (laughs) all the court filings. I have read none of it other than up to this point that we're through, and so therefore we will not spoil anything past Oathbringer Chapter 4. So what do you think so far? It's all right so far. It's all right. We're just getting into it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some stuff to chew on, you know, enough stuff to talk about. We kind of drew this line in the sand for this section sort of blindly um, because you had, like, lost your copy of Oathbringer, and I was like, I'm just just calling it here. I'm just saying after chapter four. This is how far I got. This is how far I got, so this is what we're doing, you know? (laughs) Uh, so we, you know, this sort of arbitrary line, uh, that we drew here, it's clearly evidence that you're better at this than I am armed with the foreknowledge of what's going to happen. Right. That helps. It does. It's handy. (laughs) And being able to read ahead. So not a huge amount happened, but still enough to talk about. I felt like there was some, some interesting stuff in the prologue and it ends with the weirdest wedding I've (laughs) ever seen. Right. And I've been to some weird weddings. That wedding, you know what? We'll talk about it when we get to that chapter. Uh, okay. All right. Shall we, shall we just dig into Let's it? Let's dig into it. Let's make it happen. The prologue is called To Weep. We take a look at the doomed feast again, this time through Eshenai's eyes. Apparently, she ran into Gavilar before the feast, and he laid out his plans to return her people's gods to her. Eshenai takes this dire news to the five the listener's ruling body, who have just been led by a strange voice to discover Seth's oath stone. They decide that this is a sign that they are supposed to remove Gavilar, and we all know what happens next. Insanity. Chaos. Destruction. Lots of running on the ceiling in flowy white robes. Mm. So So we open the book again with 
another viewpoint on the feast and more and more yeah. pieces are getting filled in. Yeah, and that is interesting. I like that sort of approach that we're getting a different perspective on this one, you know, antecedent event every time we open up a new book from a different person's perspective. This was probably one of the most enlightening. It also shows off more of the Chad vibe that Gavilar has. Right. Yeah, Gavilar's definitely a Chad. He's got a little bit of that vibe going on. Shard plate that definitely has the popped, popped collar. Popped shard plate collars. <laughs> Me and the boys, we're going to go up. We're going to awaken your gods. <laughs> Gonna catch some gnarl curl, then we're gonna go waken your gods. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool because the first two times that we have been through this scene, the focus has been on why. Why did the Parshendi do this? They're this this big mystery, these mysterious people, and we've seen little hints. And it's been slowly revealed to us throughout the last two books. But now we finally have this scene laid out to us where we see Gavilar put out his plans in a very Chad-like way. You're right. Because Eshenai is like, no, we don't. We we ran away from our gods. They're awful. It's going to be great, brah. (laughs) No, 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 no. You don't understand. (laughs) She's like, but this will lead to war. Gnarly curls, man. (laughs) Got to get the bros back together. (laughs) We're living without honor, man. What can you do? (laughs) I understand it's going to mean the destruction of your people, but until then, (laughs) gnarly curls. (laughs) So a couple of notes that I took in this prologue. Uh, the first was how Eshenai, in the very beginning, she's thinking about when she first met the humans and that she'd always imagined humans as being as they were in the songs, dark, formless monsters. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And one thing that's been slowly revealed through the book is the idea of the Parshendi or the listeners being void bringers, the Parshman being void bringers, the songs about them all being dark, formless monsters yeah, with yeah. red eye, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that the listeners also had songs about humans that were similar. Yeah, I, th- I thought the same the same sort of thing. I also, that was my first note as well, not that particular item, but just in general about Esh and I's sort of fascination with the humans. Because I find it interesting that she portrays it in this perspective that like, I was so fascinated by the humans and their human society. They were so bland and squishy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like she describes them in this like pathetic way. She's like, they were almost slug-like and vapid. I couldn't get enough. Like she comes at it from this angle of like, they were so fascinating, and yet she describes them in a way that makes them seem so pathetic at the same point in time. Now, the one part I think she does sort of do justice to, and it makes sense about her fascination, mm-hmm. is sort of the technology and the art, the yes. architecture and things of that nature. You know, that part I think came across, but the other part of it just seemed sort of bizarre that... um 
that she would be so fascinated by it. But I guess anything you haven't seen before that lives in legend, uh, you know, I, I guess that makes sense. But I guess what it speaks to for me is I have a hard time getting into Esh and I's head. Mm-hmm. I, you know, in the way of Kings, I so wanted to see things from the Parshendi perspective, to get the listener's perspective. Because I I sort of felt like this whole time, like they're this sort of unknown, you know, evil, but if we understood them, they probably wouldn't actually be that way. Mm -hmm. And so we get this character, Inesh and I, who is supposed to be the answer to that sort of question for me. And yet we get her perspective, and I don't know, it just doesn't really do anything for me. I don't know why. It's interesting because these are really alien life forms and the way that they think and relate to each other is very alien. And I find that very interesting. And this whole idea of of the rhythms being such an important part of their communication. Mm-hmm. And even when Oshanai is trying to talk to Gavilar, she's trying when she's trying to comfort him, she sings to the rhythm of peace, mm-hmm. or she sings to the rhythm of appreciation when she thinks he's trying to be impressed. Not even understanding, even as adept as she is at speaking the, the his language, not realizing that he is not picking up on any of that. It's completely outside his realm of experience yeah. and that the humans and the listeners have a fundamental disconnect. And I find that very interesting. One thing I think that comes across for me in Ashona's character in this prologue is, and is they've talked about her love of adventure and exploration. And so I see her fascination with the humans coming from that. You know, she always thought she was going to discover things that were going to be, you know, imagine the whole world thinking she's going to go out and explore the world and maybe find some cool rocks. And she finds like another whole, another sentient race. Yeah. And they've built From this, legend. this amazing city. She's like, holy crap. So, yeah. you know, It'd that's like where her crossing the Delaware Bay and finding elves. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. I think what it's like for her. It'd be like crossing into Williamsburg and finding hipsters. <laughs> and they're like, and the elves are like, Hey man, Figured out how to resurrect Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. We want to put him back no, no, in power. No, no, no. He no, was no, great. No. Everyone loved Hitler. Hey, we, we, re- what this world really needs right now is another Hitler. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> how do I express this in a way that <laughs> shows my appreciation for your intent, and yet at the same point in time lets you know how incredibly stupid that is? <laughs> But, you know, ultimately, Gavilar isn't doing this for the listeners, and it's it's a very selfish motive that he has. Yes. He wants the power of the radiance. So one of the things I noted that I thought was interesting that he says, there's a number of things, and actually most of my notes in this section come from the prologue, mm-hmm. and, and really from this interaction. But the first thing I noted was that he says, hey, you got to get a message to the five, brah. Mm-hmm. I'm being watched. <laughs> yeah, that's important. And I'm like, wait a minute. Being watched by who? Like, who are you being watched by? And aren't you the king of what in this sort of age has been the most unified the Alethi have ever been? Mm-hmm. 
So whoever's watching you, can't you like uncover them, demote them, something? I mean, it's not unheard of that this situation, you know, that we would have this sort of situation. We know how politically fragmented the Alethi are. Mm -hmm. um, And we know that there are all these sort of random conspiracies and secret bodies and uh, going on. So it's not really out of the realm of possibility, but it is sort of shocking is too strong a word, but I'll use it. It's sort of shocking that this person who is the most powerful king of this age is like, I'm being watched and doesn't seem to have any power to really do much about it. Right. And it's interesting because throughout one of the chapters that we see here, we get a glimpse as to how tenuous Gavilar's reign really was though. I mean, he's, he's the high King, but just recently and kind of barely. And really he's just still kind of holding these other high princes down. And in fact, when he's killed by Seth right away, he names off a couple of names. Who sent you this one or that one or Royan or who, you know, who was, who was it? Yeah. So that's not too surprising to me. No, not really. So the other thing I thought was interesting is that Gavilar shows Eshenai a Fabriel. And then he references that with a particular special type of gemstone, you could hold even a quote, God. Now, I think the God, I think the term God in this world deserves a little bit of attention mm-hmm. because it's so sort of ambiguous right. as to what the hell that can mean. Because there's Stormfather is treated as a God, and we know he's a Spren, and mm-hmm. Spren can be contained by Fabrials. Mm-hmm. But we have also heard that he's not really a God. Mm-hmm. Honor or cultivation are referenced as gods. Then there's other gods that are referenced, it seems like there's different levels of gods and different types of power structures, and we don't really understand what any of that means. So does he mean a really badass spren, or does he legitimately mean a god? One of these like minor gods like honor that can be killed, or like a real serious creator? We don't really know. Right. But the other thing is that after he references that, he gives her this black gemstone, like sphere-like gemstone that has like a purple light mm-hmm. in it, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the same thing he gave Seth in The Way of Kings. Correct. So it seems like he's referencing the gemstone that he gives her. Correct. I mean, it seems that way. But it's a weird way to go about it. He's like, there are gemstones that can hold even a god. Um... How about those Yankees? And by the way, give this to your folks. Right. No, and, and rather than being like, and this is one of them, and I give it, you know, it's sort of a strange way of handling it. If that is, in fact, what this is. Yeah, that's definitely one of the mysteries that gets introduced in the prologue. We also have the mystery of who or what led the the five, the listeners, to Seth's Oathstone and his ownership. Eshenai says that, you know, just previously, Clade, one of the five, was led by a mysterious voice in his head mm-hmm. who somehow led him to a, a circumstance which made him the owner of Seth, who then confessed to being an assassin. Well, wasn't it earlier in the chapter as well that she referenced... 
when talking about the Parshman that they went because they sold Parshman as slaves. Yes. And so they went to the markets to see if they could buy one to prove whether or not it was true. It was Clade that went. Right. And But they didn't sell him a Parshman because it was too expensive, and he bought a human slave instead. Mm-hmm. Is, th- is that who Seth was? I feel like they said Alethi. Yeah, they said that he bought an Alethi. Okay, which clearly Seth is not. Would the listeners know that, or would they treat all humans? But we also know that Seth was previously owned by the assassin who was in the castle that night that met with Yasna. Oh, that's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Either way, voices speaking directly into their heads. It definitely seems like a strange circumstance. Something's going on. Yeah, that they end up with the tool that they need conveniently at the time that they need it mm-hmm. to be able to assassinate Gavilar right after he spills their plans about the sharks with the laser beams attached to their heads. It, exactly. It all it all seems a little strange in the timing. What do you think that gem light holds? Well, I can't answer that question. I think it holds a secret. What do you, the secret to what? The secret of Nim. <laughs> you remember the secret of Nim? I remember the secret of Nim. Funny story about that movie. I watched that movie when I was a kid and I was home with a stomach flu and I cannot watch that movie without feeling slightly nauseated. <laughs> I'm serious. A uh, funny thing about that movie for me is even now it scares the shit out of me. It's terrifying. <laughs> I thought it was just because I had the stomach flu and I tried to watch it years later. I was like, oh no, this movie is horrifying. It's terrifying. I watched it when it first came out, which, I don't know, I was eight or nine or something Mm -hmm. like that. I was young. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly when. But I think my parents thought, oh, it's like a Disney movie. It's a cartoon. It's a cartoon and there's rats. It's, you know, how... It's got to be fine. Right. It wasn't freaking fine. (laughs) That movie is terrifying. Anyway, I don't think it's that, but I remember one of the characters had this dark crystal. Mm -hmm. You might be thinking of the other... Movie called The Dark Crystal? Movie called The Dark Crystal. Aren't they remaking that? They are. Fun times. Not to get too far down a rabbit hole. But yeah, I'm excited about that. So the other thing that uh, Gavilar says is that he wants to... He wants to bring back the Alethi gods because for a couple of reasons. One, he says they're lacking honor. They need to be united. Uh, but he also says that he wants to restore the continent from its lifeless state. Mm-hmm. Which I've always said that uh, there's something metaphysical, spiritual behind the reason that the entire continent minus Shinovar uh, is covered in Krem and rock making it essentially completely inhospitable. Interesting post that I saw this week on the Stormlight Archive Facebook page. Mm -hmm. This guy was a scientist, uh, astrophysics, I believe, and he wrote this post where he was looking at the, the placement of Roshar in its solar system and the placement of its moons and the, the planets surrounding it. Is there even maps of that? Uh, in Arcanum Unbounded. Mm, okay. Which right. is the, the collection of short stories that Brandon Sanderson put out in the Cosmere. And each world is described a little bit. 
That's where we found out that Roshar's gravity is different from you know, mm. what we would consider Earth's gravity, things like that. That's why you can have these giant great shells that don't, like, collapse under the weight of their themselves. own bodies. Yeah. Uh, we also find out that Roshar has a very high oxygen content, again, which allows the great shells to be able to live, also makes it, you know, you don't have a whole lot of fires and torches, stuff like that. Anyway, what this guy did was, like, he actually looked at, you know, so you have these three moons, they all rise at the same time. I don't remember the specifics. You can, and I wish I remembered his name, I would give him credit. But um, but it was very interesting. And he said, you know, if you look at these things, he said, I am I crazy? Or did Brandon Sanderson actually consult scientists about this? Because I think it actually makes sense that if this planet was the way he says it is, that yes, there would be these storms that... Hmm do exactly what it says. And then someone said, no, I, I've asked him that. And he said he did consult scientists and actually construct this planet like purposefully. He didn't just kind of, wouldn't it be cool if there was this storm that went around? Like, no, like this could possibly be a natural phenomenon. I don't believe it. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. Like where else have you seen that level of world building? No, it's, I mean, I don't think anybody can take anything away from Brandon Sanderson when it comes to world building. I still hold that the reason why the planet is covered in a, is predominantly lifeless is for metaphysical reasons. All right. I think the war between odium and cultivation is not... Uh, you know, is not something that's just happening simply at sort of a, uh, you know, a metaphorical level. I think it's legitimately the reason why mm -hmm. only Shinovar has a normal habitat. I mean, normal for us. True. True. When you look at what's normal for most of the life on Roshar, they wouldn't do well in Shinovar. I guess you could, the other way you could look at it is simply that they have found a way through using stormlight and technology to make this otherwise lifeless, largely lifeless continent be able to sustain life and generate enough food and things of that nature. Because without all that magic, you wouldn't be able to support that population that exists on the continent. You wouldn't be able to do it. It's you mean humans? Correct. Yeah, yeah. 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 Humans would not be able to exist. I would say that the rest of the life on the planet and the listeners, you know, seem to have adapted, and at least as far as the Kremlings, the Axe Hounds, the song, you know, mm -hmm. the creatures that are described, the natural life seems to do okay. I would I would argue that Roshar is not a a barren planet. At least when we when we go through and look at Shalon's chapters and her descriptions of the natural wildlife. That's true. You know? Yeah, that's certainly true. So the other thing is, how is it that Gavilar could possibly think, we've kind of already hinted at this, he could possibly think that the listeners would be like, yeah, go right ahead, reawaken our gods who are natural enemies of your gods, recreate the Knights Radiant, and go to war with us, we'll be totally fine with it. Let's sign a peace treaty, and then as a result of it, go to war with you. How could he conceivably think 
that they would be okay with this. How could he think that? He's obviously pretty self-involved. Gavilar is described as being someone who just moves throughout the world and people just revolve around him. You know? He wants something. People just seem to to fall into line. That or he doesn't really fully understand what he's doing and maybe he Mm. thinks that he can sort of awaken the gods and then does not understand that what that means is that they will then take over the listeners. Oh, no, I absolutely agree with you there. I definitely do not think he understands Yeah, the mechanisms of what is going to happen. Yeah, correct, yeah. That's the only thing that would make sense. Mm-hmm. All right, my only other note in this prologue, and I'm surprised it's taking me this long to, to ask this question, but where did Gavilar get all this information from? Very good question. It's interesting that there seem to be no artifacts to demonstrate where he drew this information from. There weren't books or tablets or scrolls. There wasn't as though there was a woman reading things to him. Uh, or if or if that stuff did exist, where did it go after he died? Like, why were they not able to walk into his rooms and find a library or an ardent or a scribe to say, oh, yeah, here's here's everything we've been trying to do for the last five years to find this information out? My thoughts on that are that Gavilar was obviously part of a an organization or some kind of cabal that was aimed at doing this. Sounds like Amaram was part of it. So I would say maybe Gavilar wasn't holding all of that information. And I would imagine that this, whoever else was involved, would have maybe liberated those resources before Yasna or anybody else got a chance to go in and start digging through his stuff. Or or that it simply was not written down and it came right. either from a person who's now not saying anything right, or from some sort of spren. I mean, I'd be willing or, to bet that Amaram has a stash of info. But just sort of interesting that all this was going on, and as soon as he died, nobody found anything that would lead back to any of this. Except if you remember when Shalon broke into Amaram's study, she found information that seemed to indicate that Amaram was looking to bring back the Voidbringers. No, no, I agree. It's it, I understand that. And I understand that Gavilar was not alone in this. Like, it, it's he was not an island and the only person doing this. I would, I would 100% agree with you there. Chapter one? Let's do it. I can't believe we've been talking this long and we're starting chapter one. Okay. Chapter one is called Broken and Divided. It's been six days since the Everstorm, and humans are settling into Eurythiru. Dalinar re-watches the first of the visions sent by the Stormfather, and he notices something new, the enemy's champion. Dalinar is shaken by how terrible and familiar the champion is. He's even more shaken when he and Navani are informed that Toral Sadius has been murdered. Murder! Chong chong! Law and order! Roshar style. 
in the Rosharan criminal justice system. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going. Well played, Duchess. <laughs> there are two branches of the Rosharan criminal justice system. The High Prince of Information. And every other motherfucker. <laughs> That's it. (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) So accurate. So Dalinar went from being completely devastatingly controlled by these visions to basically being able to like play them up, rewind, zoom in. Yeah. He's like, he's gone from just being completely, completely just controlled by them to like the Stormfather is now basically just his bitch. Yeah, right. Stormfather's like, it's it's just like a painting and a backdrop. It doesn't mean anything. He's like, enhance the image. (laughs) Zoom in. (laughs) Enhance it further. (laughs) Oh shit, there's the murder weapon. I mean it actually felt like an episode of Law and Order at that part where they're sitting there being like, zoom in on that. Yeah. It actually reminded me a lot of Ender's game. Hmm. where he's sort of in, when he's in sort of the game itself, mm-hmm. and he starts sort of finding right. different angles and ways of manipulating the game. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminded me of that in a way. Yeah, good call. So I took some notes on the champion, because that seems like the big part of at least the vision. That that was really my only note in this chapter. That That was, to me, the most significant thing in this chapter. Right, so this is something that he has not noticed before and that the Stormfather can't see in the vision. Right as he's watching this vision of Kolinar being in ruins and then the whole world being destroyed, this wave of destruction. So, of course, this, you know, he decides he wants to feel the wave of destruction this time. Just Let, let me it. feel it. Let me feel it. You asshole. But after the world is destroyed, what he sees is a terrible glowing golden light and a dark shadow with red eyes that seems terribly familiar and has nine shadows. The storm father didn't put this part of the vision there. He didn't not know it was there, but he says that this is odium's champion and seeing this figure seems to kind of light a fire under Dalinar that, oh, shit, like, we really need to get our act together. Yeah, because early in the chapter, he's lamenting. He's like, I've reached out to the kings and the monarchs and the other kingdoms, and they don't believe me. They just don't believe me. And then after seeing that, he's like, we've got to find a way to make them believe. Like, yes. You know, Navani's like, but we don't have food. He's like, fuck food. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to have a world. We're going to die. We ain't going to have a world to stand on, let alone food. The other thing it reminds me of is, and I, I don't remember precisely where, but one of the snapters that we read references like planets dying in just a huge wash mm-hmm. of sort of nothingness, you mm-hmm. know, this cloud of antimatter, this, uh, the nothing from the, it reminds mm-hmm. me of the nothing from it the does. never ending story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me like that sort of wash of this thing coming across and essentially unmaking the world uh, is the same. It's ref- it's the same thing that was mm-hmm. referenced in one of the snapters. That's exactly what it reminded me of as well. 
I love too in this chapter, real quick, just the development of Dalinar and Navani's relationship. How he, you know, he spent so long idealizing her and building her up in his mind as this untouchable, you know, perfect person. And it, it makes it very clear that he no longer sees her that way. Every now and then he looks at her and he sees that, but now he sees her as she is and he sees her flaws. And he is it's just, aware that she does, in fact, fart. She does. She definitely. I don't think Navani has farted in front of Dalinar at this point. Oh, but listen. I, I think intellectually, at least, he knows that she has that she farts. Listen, she got that tallow ass. Just stank up a joint. <laughs> I mean, he's seen her safe hand, but I don't know <laughs> that he's heard her fart. I don't, I'm disagreeing with you. I don't think you eat enough tallow. You can't. You can't help it. <laughs> Uh, so then, of course, at the end, we have the revelation that Sadius, Sadius has been is, found. Yeah. Don't get too much more of a, a reaction, but... Not not in this in chapter. Next chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. chapter two is called One Problem Solved. Adolin is working on the nitty-gritty problems that arise when you try to suddenly repopulate a millennia-old city. He's grateful for the work, though, as it distracts him from the pesky guilt over his recent murder spree. Is one murder considered a spree? Not sure. But what we do know is that Sadius's death is going to complicate matters in Eurothero. So this is called One Problem Solved. And it's from the, the best line in the chapter. Uh, My favorite part. Go ahead, go ahead. Is when, you know, it's like, blah, 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 and all drama, 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 and, and Polona, who is Sabariel's mistress, walks in, and she just goes... Well, that's one problem solved. Yeah. (laughs) And then she's like, what? I know you were all thinking it. Uh, Polona reminds me of Cordelia from Buffy Ah, the Vampire Slayer. I like it. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. The only other note I have in this chapter, and, and the problem that I felt like was solved was that we have confirmation that the Lopin has two arms. Yeah. Yeah, he does. So we have the Lopin with two arms, and we also have in Edge Dancer, not to get too spoilery about Edge Dancer, but we have in Edge Dancer, people being healed of mental health issues and um, developmental disabilities and things of that nature. So... I don't really know where that's going. I don't have a huge opinion about it, but it's something I'm going to be paying attention to. Well, we know that certain of the orders of Knights Radiant have the ability to heal. I think two of the orders have the ability to heal. That is what the Radiant that that Lift finds in that yeah. book mm-hmm. has the ability to heal. Yeah. Uh, the Lopin is able to heal himself because he has become a squire. So it turns out that certain orders, um, once a radiant is fully gets to a certain level, he starts to develop squires. So people around him who are close to him start to get powers of their own, not through bonding their own spren, but just sort of that are tied to his powers. I did not recognize that at all. That is what is going on, though. Where did we read that? It says it in this chapter. Get out of Dodge. Okay. It says that a bunch of members of Bridge 4 had become squires, and their powers are directly tied to their radiant master, 
but they, they don't have spren of their own. But this is coming from Dalinar's perspective. Dalinar is ex- kind of mentally explaining it uh-huh. as as it's been explained to him, I'm assuming through Shalon and, and Navani in their studies of okay. the Knights Radiant. Okay. I completely missed that. It's definitely mentioned, a f- I think, a few times in the Words of Radiance about different order squires. We also saw some squires in Edge Dancer who, and at the end of, at the end of Words of Radiance? I'm not sure, but uh, Nin has squires, his skybreakers. Hmm. Okay. Do not have spread of their own, and it's mentioned that they don't have spread of their own but they can still fly and stuff. And that's why you have me here. These rules are just convoluted. It's amazing. (laughs) Makes other magic systems seem kind of blah. I almost feel like Brandon Sanderson is just making this shit up. I mean, he, I mean, he is. That's what fiction is. (laughs) So one thing I thought was cool is to see how loyal Aladar has become to Dalinar. We saw this transformation starting to happen at the end of Words of Radiance, but in this, he's like, he tells Dalinar how fully on board he is. Look, he's like, look, I saw what went down in that battle, and I know what we're up against, and I'm here, and I'm with you. So Dalinar makes him the High Prince of Information, which is convenient, I guess, to have someone loyal to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because really, this is going to muck things up for Dalinar. Mm Mm-hmm. He also makes Sabariel the High Prince of Commerce, and obviously he's going to remain the High Prince of War. We, we don't see Elikar at any point in all no. of this. Mm-mm. He's he referenced, but that's it. Referenced as being badly wounded, and so he doesn't, doesn't come out of his rooms at this point. This is also where we get Dalinar as Jerry Orbach. He's like, this body hasn't been moved Yes, yes. You can tell I'm very familiar with death. <laughs> and he is. And he is very familiar with death. This is where I wish I had one of those, like, really, like, over-the-top, like, gallows humor cop jokes, you know, like the, uh, I always thought he was a little stiff. <laughs> you know, so- something like that. Uh-huh. But I don't. Chapter three is called Momentum. He's rolling his eyes already. It's a Dalinar flashback, and he is in full Gillette razor mode. (laughs) He's shaving with 17 blades and having flaming rock buds for breakfast. Oh, God. He takes down a bright lord against overwhelming odds, but is shot twice by an assassin as the battle winds down. He finds the archer, but rather than kill him, Dalinar recruits the man. After a chat with his good pal Sadius, Dalinar stomps off into the sunset, bemoaning the fact that he can't kill anyone else today. (laughs) Bring me all of their shard blades. I have 10 a.m. shadow. (laughs) Dalinar is definitely the manliest of men here. Oh, my God. The name of this chapter is... Too goddamn long. That's what the name of this chapter is. I actually, in rereading it, was shocked to find that it wasn't nearly as long as I actually thought it was. This has been my least favorite chapter in this entire series so far. Really? Yeah. 
Because I'm, we find out that, okay, Dalinar is going to be the flashback character in this book. Mm-hmm. Yay. We find out that back in his olden days, he was a real dickhead. Mm-hmm. We kind of already knew that. Mm-hmm. This chapter could have been about three pages. Instead, it was like 15. And it was just 15 pages of him like swinging his sword and hacking at this and doing that and get like, like it was just way longer than it needed to be. And I'm very impressed, Mr. Sanderson, with your ability to write combat scenes. Can we please get back to the book? I mean, I could see your point about the combat scene definitely could have been shorter. It's totally gratuitous. I mean, it is a fantasy novel. Gratuitous combat. I mean, I'm not I'm not one who enjoys combat scenes in general. I think Brandon Sanderson writes the best ones that I've read. And that's one of the things I like about his books. Because if you're reading fantasy, you're going to have battle scenes. Uh, you're going to have duels. You're going to have stuff like that. He tends to make it at least so I can follow it. But yeah, that definitely was a long battle. I think that we learn a lot of important stuff about Dalinar's character, especially when we look at who he was, you know, as the backdrop of the person that he is today. And and I get that it's trying to draw a contrast between, Mm -hmm. you know, Dalinar. I mean, I was going to say Dalinar, like you almost get the sense that like, this is Dalinar when he's like 24 years old. Mm-hmm. And now we have Dalinar when Dalinar is, you know, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. But this is like 10 years ago. It's not that long ago. Maybe little. This is longer than 10 years. This is before he had Adolin. This how, is before oh, okay. he was married, before he had kids. Well, how long did Gavilar uh, have the kingdom united or is this this is like at the very beginning of the conquest to start doing that but i would say this is most of the way through the conquest so how long was gavilar king of a united alethi or under united alakar i don't know off the top of my head but i would say i mean i would i mean this makes it seem like it was like 25 years ago so Adolin is in his early 20s. Yeah. I would say they, he sounds like they've been on the Shattered Plains for, what did they say, seven years, eight years? Seven years, yeah. Seven years. So I would say he was maybe king for like 10-ish years. Okay. Um, But this is definitely before Gavil- Dalinar has his any of his shards mm-hmm. or his Rashadium, all, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's before he got married because we find out later that he he married his wife to get his shard plate. So it's I think it's interesting and important to note the differences in his character because I think it helps you understand who he is today. One thing I found very interesting is how much he talks about momentum. And the way that he fights in this chapter versus the way that we see him fighting, his inner monologue during fights mm-hmm. Up until now, we've seen him very different, very different feelings, very different view on the thrill, and how much he talks about momentum in this flashback and about how that's what drives him. It's He says, you just pick a direction and you just don't let anything get in your way. That's what he does. That's how he lives his entire life versus the character that we have seen as someone who's 
biggest flaw is probably his indecision. The fact that he overthinks everything to the point where sometimes he can't do anything. And I think that's so interesting because it's just so true of, of people that we tend to let ourselves be shaped by the person that we were. You know, we have something about us that we don't like, and then we sometimes will just overcompensate. And I think Dalinar even talks about that. You know, he talks about the man that he used to be. This is an upcoming chapter Mm -hmm. and how that his desire not to be that person really shapes a lot of his decisions today. So I think it's just interesting to note the things we learn about this character. You know, the fact that he does all this carnage chopping heads left and right and the bright lord finally before he kills him says why why are you doing this and he says i don't know my brother points i go i chop heads that's it and this is definitely not the dalinar that we know today no who has to has to have a reason he has to overthink every single action and you know look at the scene with the assassin i mean for me i kind of like that you know this this image of him getting shot by all these arrows. He's like bristling with arrows. He runs up, he finds this guy and he's like, man, that was a great shot. Yeah. Can you do it again? And he's like, what? He's like, you work for me now. And he's like, no. He's like, yeah, you do. And then at the end, I don't know if you picked this up, but it's this very kind of offhanded remark where he's like, this guy's really loyal. That's really great. I'm going to have to have so-and-so go find his family and make sure that we have a hold on him. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I they're going to we're going to have to pay a visit to his family to make sure that we have his loyalty now. And it's just like, man, that is cold. He's a real piece of work. He is he's a real biff. <sighs> Chapter 4 is called Oaths. The Everstorm returns to Eurythiru and Dalinar and Navani watch it from high above. Navani wants to get busy, but Dalinar wants to put a ring on it first. He confesses to her that he can't even remember his first wife due to his visit to the Night Watcher. His memories of that time are broken and tortured, and he is determined to do things right with Navani. Unfortunately, the couple has been unable to find an ardent willing to marry them. Then they realize, who needs an ardent when you have the last living sliver of the Almighty himself bonded to you? And it's surprise rooftop wedding. <laughs> you know, I just, I picture... I can just picture the scene where Dalinar like kind of like turns, he's like, you know, and he kind of turns away for a second. He's like, we could get the storm father to marry us. And he like turns back into Bonnie standing there in a wedding dress. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bring plenty of towels. She is ready. She's ready to pop. This is definitely one of the more bizarre. <laughs> You're like, oh, they're going to get married. Oh, they're get. Oh, they're oh, getting married. They're, they're doing they're, it now. They're doing it now, and uh, we can't find anyone to marry us. I I know a few people. <laughs> I can make it happen. <laughs> it's sort of like being in the Catholic Church and being like, well, no, none of the priests will marry us. That's okay. I can speak to I can speak to the Virgin Mother. <laughs> we'll get married in front of this statue. This statue will marry us. But you know what? The Stormfather does an impressive job, <laughs> and I I thought that was pretty cool that 
Well, I, I like the wedding ceremony. I thought a couple things were neat about it. I loved that the vows weren't like long and elaborate, no. you know? It was just like, she's mine, he's mine. All right, you're married. Yeah. Do you promise? Yeah. Do you really mean it? Well, I mean, as best we can, we're humans. I. But I mean, when you, your vows are being taken by a giant face in the sky. Yeah. Hey, yo. Oh, those are important to me. <laughs> that, that I don't have anything oh, else. Oh, okay. I, don't have anything, I, I have nowhere else to go with I that. I thought I'm we're just, starting. No, 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 no. It's too late to start. <laughs> so, yeah, I love the surprise rooftop wedding. Um I, I like this exploration of religious tradition versus morality. And so Navani and Dalinar, the reason that they haven't been able to find an ardent to marry them is not because it's necessarily considered a moral or is against their religion, but according to their cultural traditions, they're considered brother and sister because she has married his brother. And that's just something that's kind of grown up, not as part of their religion, just sort of an extra regulation. And so, you know, in part because of people are not happy with the things he's talking about with his visions as well, the Ardents have decided that even though the one Ardent that he talks to really doesn't see anything morally wrong with it, but the Ardentia in general have decided that they shouldn't be married. And that's something that you see in Brandon Sanderson's work a lot, the idea of religious traditionalism and kind of social mores versus an absolute sense of morality. Well, and I do like that complexity that Brandon Sanderson has in this sort of religious, spiritual cult. Like, he, he, he does a good job of giving you sort of all those subtleties and I don't think every fantasy author out there does, mm-hmm. you know, of kind of giving you all those different conflicting things mm-hmm. and the way that they layer on top of each other to make, you know, to allow people to make decisions. Uh, it really was this sort of conversation with uh, Kadash, Kadish, mm-hmm. however you pronounce his name, that was the most interesting part of it to me. And as you said, that he's like, I, I know you're telling the truth and I don't really think it matters. I don't have a problem with it. But what you're saying about honor being dead is just not acceptable. No, you can't. Mm-hmm. People can't hear you say that. That's going to cause problems. And Dalinar is like, yeah, but Stormfather <laughs> right there <laughs> said that honor's dead. Right. Like, what do you want me to do here? You know? Mm-hmm. So that part of it was the most interesting part of this chapter to me. Well, yeah. And we see Dalinar here holding on to what he knows is right without really wavering or waffling at all. You know, he said, you know, I have bonded the storm father. Like I, I seriously can't lie. Like I cannot lie. It would yeah. be a very bad idea. Or in past books, we wouldn't have seen him be able to be that resolute. Um, he definitely had sort of this indecision and people pleasing thing going on. I also think what he has to say about oaths in general and why they're important 
And the fact that he does want to marry Navani, he doesn't want to do things halfway with her. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, followed up with the Stormfather's statement about oaths. And he he says that um, there are no foolish oaths. Oaths are the mark of men and true spren over beasts and subspren. They're the mark of intelligence, free will, and choice. And I just think that's a, you know, an interesting statement and stance to have. The other, one of the more important parts of this book, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other thing I think is interesting, and this is not by any stretch the only book where we see this, is actually a fairly common thing that you tend to see in fantasy novels, of we have the emergent reality of their situation. Mm-hmm. And then we have this person who seems to be rational saying, yeah, but but there's this cultural norm that you're violating, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of it's, you know, it's, you see this a lot, you know, in a song of ice and fire, it's, you know, it's the hand of the, of the other, you know, mm-hmm. that comes down and they're like, yeah, but, uh, I'm not going to let those, uh, you know, I'm not going to let the Terrells get one up on me, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, people who are just so sort of looking at the here and the now, mm-hmm. uh, that they can't see the bigger, picture uh, and i think that's you know another thing that we see in kadash that he's like he's like yeah okay fine there was this huge storm coming the other way and the storm father seems right. to be a sp- okay <laughs> but you can't marry your sister bro like <laughs> let's get set our priorities straight here buddy you know what would the ardentia think how about the ardentia is going to get washed away in the next right? few days asshole (laughs) but isn't that such an interesting commentary on humanity and how we kind of are yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) i mean you could point to you could point to 15 things things off the top of your head (laughs) we were doing that today yeah getting we're not going to but you could we could the other thing about kadash that was interesting is that What's also coloring this conversation is that this guy seems to have been one of Dalinar's old soldiers. Mm-hmm. And this is where I do think there is some, this is where I did arrive, derive some validity mm-hmm. from the prior chapter of getting a sense of kind of who Dalinar was. Mm-hmm. And then understanding why this guy who used to be one of his roll dogs is all like, yeah, but I know who you are. Right. Like I saw you back then. You know, and he kind of can't quite let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying he should. We're trying to cast him in a negative light. He sees Dalinar in sort of a larger historical context. But Dalinar also says, you know, like he references that there was some dark moment, something mm-hmm. that drove this person to the Ardentia. He calls it the rift. And he says, uh, Rathalos, Rathalos, or whatever mm-hmm. it is which sounds like somebody's name. Right. Who, to this point, we haven't heard of anywhere else. And um, Dalinar says, what is it that he remembers that I don't? Mm-hmm. Now, also in this chapter, he tells Navani earlier in the chapter, he tells Navani, I don't remember my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. I'm not wounded when you say her name. Mm-hmm. I literally have no recollection of her. And what I'm questioning is, is this hint... This thing that Dalinar says when he's talking to Kadash, 
where he says, what is it that he remembers that I don't? Is it tied to the same sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Did did he not only forget his wife, but did he maybe forget some of the other things he did mm-hmm. as a young man? That's the only sort of logical thing I can see that would mm-hmm. make sense. Or that he was such an alcoholic that he did something in a stupor. Mm-hmm. Those are the only two things that seem to make sense here. Mm-hmm. I'm betting it's the former and not the latter. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we've now, this is the third book, and each book has had a flashback character. And right away in the first flashback, they introduce what's going to be the defining moment in those flashbacks. So with Kaladin, it's like we know, right away we know his brother's going to die, and that's going to be, that's his turning point. Yeah, And then the flashbacks slowly build up to actually witnessing that moment. And we're kind of seeing that here too. There's there's something that Dalinar did that he doesn't remember, some horrible thing that that made this soldier become an ardent. And you know, you can kind of see that's going to be the shape of our flashbacks. What yeah. takes us to that moment? I mean, he burned a Vietnamese village. Something, something went down. I mean, he did something. Something pretty horrible happened. So real quick, a couple of notes about the Everstorm, because they're watching it from Eurythiru, but they're high up enough that it's not affecting them. But I thought it was interesting that they talked about the differences between it and, and other high storms in that, A, it doesn't recharge spheres, so it's not even a tiny bit helpful. No. <laughs> and that it's less powerful and destructive than a high storm, but it seems to attack in deliberate bursts where people are vulnerable. So, yeah, like it has some intelligence behind it. Yeah, it seems to attack small towns that are less protected yeah, um, as over opposed, cities. Yeah, as opposed to the high storm, which is just like a force of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, Right. So that's the last note that I have. And that's it. So next we're going to read chapters 5 through 12. That's right. It's like 76 pages, so hold on to your hats. Perfect. And I don't know if 103 will be that or maybe Saga or Paper Girls. Most likely. We don't know. It's summer. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Swim team is kicking our ass, you guys. Oh, there's so many things. We have weddings and we have places we have to go to and some vacation stuff coming up. And we really thought we were going to end up being in a place where we would be able to re- put out an episode consistently every week throughout the summer. This is now we're, we're trending into the apology section of the podcast. Right? <laughs> so, so we thought we'd be able apology to apology re- and bitching. Yeah. Right. <laughs> One seems a lot like the other. Sometimes <laughs> we thought we would have more time to record. Uh, we also thought we were going to have, we thought we'd be further along in our podcasting studio project uh, than we are. Uh, and none of these things have quite come to bear the way that we thought they would. You mean I don't have more free time when the kids are home from school? Shh, I don't know what, what we were thinking. happening? It's like we've never done this before. <laughs> you know, it's like something happens over the preceding 10 months that makes us forget <laughs> how this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> 
we thought we'd be able to record ahead enough, but it's it's not going to happen. So <laughs> this summer, we're just going to do the best we can to keep up with it as consistently as we can keep up with it. And uh, it's just we'll see you when we see it. Be what it's going to be like, it's <laughs> just going to have to be. So anyway, would you like to hear some interactions from our listeners? Yes, I would. All right. Okay. So Ian James Crone says, and I love this, so how much of a kick in the teeth is it to realize that the wisest character in the first two books was a total douche-level Chad in his youth? <laughs> See, I think he's more of a Biff, but... Well, what's yeah. the difference between a Biff and a Chad? Okay, Biff is more of the brute force. Okay. Biff is the guy that the Chad six on, you know, the helpless nerds that he wants to pick on. Well... Gavilar strikes me more as a Chad than I, Dalinar. I feel so, like yeah. Gavilar is the Chad and Dalinar is kind of the Biff. Yeah, I'm down with that. I'm down with the that. The Chad is the brains of the operation. I didn't I didn't have a Biff when I was a kid. You weren't really a Chad though, babe. Yes. I did have I did have a Philip and I did have a Mike. They kind of fulfilled the same roles, I think. Oh, you did? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I think you got beat up as a kid too much to be a Chad. Sorry, we're sidebarring <laughs> here, but I'm just saying. I got my ass handed to me once or twice. <laughs> Vincent Gravex says it might be too early to speculate, but do you have any idea as to who Odium's champion with the red eyes and the nine shadows might be? Could it be a character that we have already met? I. Have a prediction about that. Ooh. So we will talk about that in the predictions. You know, I, we forgot to talk about the nine shadows, but did we mention real quick that those, the Stormfather told us that those are the unmade, which we've heard mentioned a couple of times. And yeah. we forgot to talk about that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that more in my. Okay. We'll talk in about your that in the prediction. Got yeah. it. Mm -hmm. It'll be covered. Yeah. So Brian McClure says, what's your first impression of young Dalinar? Biff. It's total Biff. Total Biff. And Brian also says, if this does turn into a battle of the champions, battle of the champions. <laughs> In this corner, we have some massive dude with nine shadows <laughs> weighing in at 378 pounds <laughs> of fighting shadow. <laughs> the unmade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And in this corner, we have Kaladin. No, I don't know. I'm not. Oh, you don't know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who the, who the other one's going to be. Brian McClure also says, what exactly do you think happened on that day? There's Burned a, a Vietnamese village. Yeah, I that's mean. That's not funny. It's not funny at all, but that's what I think happened. Yeah, something, something that something, horrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't, I mean. That's not not attempting to make light of right. anything at all. Yeah. I, I think it's something on that level. Yeah. Yeah. Also, kind of one of my predictions. Uh, Brian says, how was your 4th of July? It rained its ass off. It did. Which was, to me, best possible outcome. Yeah, because it was hot. It was so freaking hot. I, I carried one thing to go take it out to set it up. I was outside for seven minutes. 
And I came inside and I, I looked at you and said, never again. I don't know how you lived in Georgia for like eight years. Well, listen, I don't live there now. <laughs> it's actually not any hotter there. Really? Not in the height of summer. It's mm. just that the summer's longer. Mm. It might get a couple degrees hotter, but it's also not as humid. Mm. So it's not like the summers there are just as bad as they are here. Or the, I should say the summers here are just as bad as they are in, mm -hmm. in Georgia. It's just that in Georgia in the wintertime, it's, you know, it gets down to 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. Brian McClure says, what was your favorite quote from this section? Well, that's one problem solved. That yeah, it's exactly mine too. <laughs> I just love that. I mean, that's, that's kind of the best one. All right, so Susan King apparently picked up on the squire thing that I did not pick up on. Mm -hmm. She says, given that members of Bridge Four are developing special power, supposedly due to being underneath the Kaladin, do you think any of the Radiance or Herald's men? will develop special power. So you referenced that Nins... Mm -hmm. I didn't really pick up that Nins to Squires mm -hmm. weren't bonded to a Spren in any way. Mm -hmm. Like, I just completely missed that. Well, I think that's how they get away with him not killing them, since he's killing everybody I else who of, has powers. Yeah, wonder how... Like, but there's so much hypocrisy in that character that mm -hmm. you're like, oh, here's just right. another layer of mm -hmm. hypocrisy. So I, I, I don't, I don't quite know. She also says, uh, if so, since Adolin is essentially Shallan's man, will he develop special powers as well? Well, this is sort of, I was actually sort of thinking along those same lines when you were kind of explaining this to me, that what determines, like, who is or isn't someone's, quote, squire? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's, there's this clear social line in the case of Bridge Four, but how does that manifest itself in some sort of metaphysical way? Every other thing I see is bound to some sort of oath or some sort of proclamation that we are Bridge Four, we are this, we are mm -hmm. bound to you in some way. Mm -hmm. But that's uh, that's all related to Kaladin, and um, Kaladin and, and Dalinar, I'm going to speculate, are probably going to share one surge. Mm -hmm. Who's to say that in different um, schools of the Radiance, it would work the same way? And I don't think it does. Um, I, I know it's and it would be interesting if you have time or you listeners and all um, to go back and look at the snapters. You know, I don't have time. I, I know you don't. <laughs> the snapters and words of radiance where they talk about the different orders. Now that we're starting, those things are starting to sort of make sense to us. So I believe one of the things we learned is that Bondsmith, there's only three of them. There's only ever three in the entire, you yeah, know, wind runners. Like, yeah. There's a ton. There's always a ton of wind runners. Those are sort of like the foot soldiers. They're, mm -hmm. the, they're the cavalry. I guess of um, I know that cavalry are not foot soldiers, but you know what I mean. I they're know what the, you meant. <laughs> they're, the, they're the main fighting force. Those are different. Well, those are also different things, though. <laughs> <laughs> you get what I mean, though. Sure. <laughs> so not every order is going to have squires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems. So it's hard to know. We, we don't know about the light weavers. They no, seem to kind yeah. of be um, the spies, the the kind of secret agents. Um, at least that's how Shalon is using her powers. So it'll be interesting to see if she ends up with squires or not. 
Yeah, because if you go by that same logic, then Navani would pick it up from Dalinar. Right. And we don't know whether so far everyone we've seen as a squire is someone who was in a, a position of being trained by the Radiant that they were not necessarily, you know, making out with. Well, yeah, I don't, I mean, if she's doing any training, it's more housebreaking mm-hmm. for Adolin. Yeah. Than, than training in a more traditional sense. You go on the paper. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just how I see Adolin. I don't know. Susan King also says, asks, do we have any idea what we think Dalinar's gift that he asked, I guess, the Night Watcher for was? I'm presuming assuaging his guilt over mm-hmm. whatever horrible thing he we find out he did at the end of this book. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for predictions? Yeah. All right. So this one might be a little on the obvious side, but uh, we sort of hinted at it. But somebody, somebody planted Seth so that he would conveniently be available mm-hmm. to Clade as Gavilar made his proclamation. Mm-hmm. True. So that's the first one. Another, I'm, I'm going from more most obvious to least obvious. So the next one is Dalinar's flashbacks will have him by the end of this book committing some sort of heinous war crime. Mm-hmm. I also think that uh, Rathalos, Rathalos, however you pronounce mm-hmm. that name, is going to be somebody that Dalinar kills. Mm-hmm. If that is the case, that'll be interesting, though, because he seems to at least be able to remember that person's name. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means. We've got two more predictions here. The unmade are a type of spren who have bound themselves to the heralds. Hmm. And that Odium's champion is Ishtar, the herald. Hmm. So there's a couple of references, you know, when we have that whole thing uh, where he sees the champion in the nine shadows, right? And one of them is the, as you said, the... The proclamation that these are called the unmade, well, we it seems like the destruction that we see is an unmaking mm-hmm. of reality. like, mm-hmm. And that these are a type of spren. So if spren are sort of the spirit of living things, you know, then the unmade are, you know, kind of the ante of that uh, mm-hmm. spren that essentially unbinds things. Mm-hmm. We know that the heralds spent sometime being tortured by mm-hmm. Odium or some bad god. Mm-hmm. So it would seem that there would have been opportunity for the unmade, if they are spren, to bond themselves to the heralds. The opportunity would have existed mm. for that to happen. And the fact that we have one principal agent who has nine shadows, references to me, ten. Hmm. There are ten heralds. So, and I think about who is sort of the ringleader of the heralds. What hint have we gotten that any one of them is sort of more of a ringleader than any of the others? Mm-hmm. And that's Ishtar, that Ishtar seems to be the one telling Nin what to do. So it's either Ishtar or Jezreel, but I'm I'm taking a stab here that if all those other things line up, which is a huge assumption, that Ishtar is Odium's champion. Hmm. 
and that I like it. the unmade are bound to the heralds. The heralds do not seem to be good dudes. They're definitely uh, losing it. Yeah, which are they losing it? There's a number of reasons why they could be losing it, but we haven't seen any of them who weren't either evil or or behaving in an evil way mm-hmm. and, and or crazy, mm-hmm. definitely crazy. Mm-hmm. Are they going crazy because they're bound to some spren that's driving them insane or just because they've been alive for thousands of years and tortured? Mm-hmm. Who knows? This is what I'm going with on the basis of the information that I have. I like it. So from fairly obvious to full on tinfoil, there you go. That's what we like. That's what we that's what you got. <laughs> you got it. Where can they find us, Duke? They can find us at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. They can also find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And you can search all the social medias for the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. That would be Goodreads, Reddit, Instagram. Twitter. Put that in a search engine. You'll find us. And if you're on Facebook, we have two pages. Look for the Duke and Duchess podcast group. It's a closed group. We will add you right away. That's where all the good times happen. Yeah, if you want to find out like about the cool uh, merch giveaways, well, you can only find out about that on the Duke and Duchess Facebook group. Put it down, flip it down, reverse it. My goodness, Duchess. <laughs> That's staying in. <laughs> no, I think I did it wrong. Can't misquote Missy Elliott on the podcast. <laughs> Missy Elliott will not be misquoted. <laughs> we'll try again then. I can't. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>